At Emory University's Coisueta Business School, we believe in going beyond what is to build what should be. Because when you change your perspective, you change business for the better. In an ever-changing marketplace, we seek to make our mark, to achieve more, build more, do more, create more. That's the Coisueta Effect. Hi, I'm Monique Jackson, Marketing Director for Emory University's Coisueta Business School and your host. Today I'll be joined by Andrew Rodbell, an Atlanta native and co-founder of Post Meridium, the first line of cocktails in 100 ml cans, disrupting the alcoholic ready-to-drink market with real authenticity. I'm also joined by Brian Casey, the Managing Director of the Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Coisueta Business School. Brian, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. So glad to have you both here. All right, so let's jump right in. Andrew, can you share your personal journey of transitioning from the corporate world to entrepreneurship? What inspired you to take the leap? So I was in corporate America, um, graduated here from Emory and uh, you know my biz- full-time business program in 2004. And so I uh, did the traditional corporate route and uh, brand management at Coca-Cola, product innovation there. And, uh, you know, I always had an entrepreneurial itch, uh, and um, I always looked even within corporate America for entrepreneurial roles. And I kind of worked on smaller brands because I thought it would be more general management and get my hands on everything and learn a few extra things. Uh, and then just, no, I always wanted to work for myself, always had that itch. And a friend approached me uh, about an idea he had in liquor. And I said, wow, that's fantastic. I've been working in penny margin industries my whole life. I'd like to work on one with the larger margins. Uh, we batted around his idea a little bit, didn't love that one as much after we looked a little deeper. Um, and long story short, this was 2000, I don't know, 17. And uh, we thought that there was a way, I had a, I'd built a certain filter about innovation, and I thought there was a way for us to disrupt the ready-to-drink uh, ca- alcoholic category. And uh, the more I dug into the idea, the more I liked the idea. One of the key statistics that blew my mind was the consumption of ready-to-drink beverages, alcoholic beverages in Europe and Asia was three and four X what it was in the U.S. So I was like, if the U.S. just catches up to where Asia and you know uh, Europe are, we're going to be a multi-billion-dollar industry. Let's let's make sure we can own a piece of that. So um, and then I also you know again one of the things I learned from Coca-Cola and other places along the way was like to look in other industries and reapply those learnings. And I said, look, no one's doing something that's perfectly authentic in this space. No one's making it right size. No one's making it full strength. And most importantly, no one's using real ingredients and using ingredient transparency to communicate with consumers. Um, and so we carefully built our business around this idea that you know we have something fully differentiated in a category that is very hot. And when uh, I, I started to fall in love with the idea, and that's, you know, uh, quit, you know, uh, corporate America and started this with, with my friend. And uh, we'll get into this later, but you know, there's a lot of, I'm a late life entrepreneur um, and there's definitely risk involved in starting your own business. Uh, and I'm very fortunate that I have a very supportive wife who I met here at Emory. Uh, and, but it is funny, I had a mortgage and three kids and all these other things and I s- still chose to leave corporate America, not pay myself for the first few years, you know, do all the things that we all have to do to earn our sweat equity as we build our, our you know, our businesses. So, uh, yeah, I would just say that, you know, from my perspective, it was just, I was kind of had the idea that I wanted to do something on my own, but it took really finding that idea and having confidence in that idea 
and having a support system around me for me to make that move. Thank you. What mindset shifts were involved with making the switch from corporate into entrepreneurship? Yeah, <laughs> it's I, I don't even know if I knew what I was getting into. <laughs> like, let's yeah. start that way. Like, I will, there is something to be said that's just very different. Um, you know, one, just the simplest things. You know, when you're in corporate America and you're out that week, someone else can maybe pick up the slack. Or, you know, you can always learn something new from somebody else. And the risk is, you know, if you underperform and you miss your goal, you know, you'll have performance reviews and you'll learn from them and move forward, but it's not, you know, going to impact, make or break your business. Uh, for good or for bad, you know, when you're on your own, you are on your own. And what I enjoy about that is that, one, decision making is more in my hands. You know, I, I, I learned even at corporate America, like half my job was internal selling, you know, instead of just doing. Uh, so in this case, I don't have to do the internal selling anymore. I just do, which is more fun. But uh, again, I'm in consumer packaged goods. I have a physical product. Uh, we built our own canning line, which is a whole other story there, and our whole operations to go behind that. Uh, so yes, my days in the beginning were quite funny. I mean, I would literally be manning the equipment. Uh, I would be driving forklifts. I would be shrink wrapping all of our cases. I was doing all the manual labor in these hot warehouses. And then I would still have to go call on the stores to get them placed. And then I'd still have to get on the phone and do my job and manage our distributors and all the other things that go with it. So it was a, it was a busy, busy time. Yes. And you learn all the pieces, which is fantastic. And, uh, you know, I'd also just say that like, I'm a very unemotional person, but like, it's a, it's a tough road on your own. And I, I think I can say that more now than I could when I first started, like, you know, um, we have done fantastically well. I'm very excited where we are. Um, lucky to be in a great category. Lucky to have a differentiated product. But there are ups and downs. You know, there absolutely are. And so it's a ride, you know. And uh, I definitely don't sleep as well as I used to <laughs> and all of those things that go with it. But um, it's also by far the most fulfilling job I've ever had and by far the best learning I've ever had. So, uh, you know, I would just say that um, there is a mindset shift. There is uh, – you know, I am now responsible, not just for me, but for all the people I hired too. So it's like you, you have to change these the way that you think a little bit. I mean, you have to have fortitude. So Brian, as the director for the Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Goisweta Business School, what are some common challenges you see people face when considering entrepreneurship? And how can they overcome those challenges? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. I mean, particularly as it relates to students. Um, for a long time, even before I took this role, I would see, uh, and I, I did a lot of work, you know, with uh, volunteering at UC Berkeley and MIT and other schools, focused on their entrepreneurial stuff uh, while I was running the venture fund. And what you find is a great desire to jump into this stuff, but uh, great fear and some real concerns, you know, especially folks coming out of an MBA program. You know, they might be carrying debt. I think that's the number one biggest challenge that I've seen is that willingness to say, okay, I'll forego that multiple hundreds of thousands of dollar salary for, you know, this startup where I'll be lucky if I pay myself 60 grand, you know? Um, and so it's a big deal. What I've encouraged folks to think about though in those moments are one, you know, do a, do a few things. If you think you like this space, it's fast moving. So think about perhaps budgeting uh, what you can tolerate economically some period of time to try it whether you're going to start your own company or work with a startup and get some experience think about how you can sort of compartmentalize some of those risks um, 
And then, you know, if you have the good fortune of, of, you know, a startup that looks exciting that might get funded, I tell entrepreneurs as they think about those early rounds of capital, you know, they often just think like exactly what they need to get to the next sort of plateau with their business to demonstrate they're doing good work. But you can't forget to price in. You really do need to price in those other th sort of externalities that relate to your own livelihood. Um, because as Andrew alluded, you know, there's also, you know, there's also a mental health tug. Any startup founder is going to find themselves in some very lonely places. It's a difficult job. There isn't a roadmap. There isn't a manual that says go do this and do that. So having the ability to, to know you have those bases covered, I think, is an important piece. So I try to urge people in those directions. Um, but, it, and, and, you know, it, sometimes, folks, sometimes folks realize, okay, I can do it that way. Yeah, something you said just reminded me of one distinction I'd love for our listeners to understand. What's the difference between a lifestyle and a high-growth business? You mentioned getting funding and how that might look different. So how is that different? How does the categorization of the business influence that? Uh, it's a good question. So at the Center um, for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Guizueta, what we focus on is really trying to expose students to uh, high growth startups generally as opposed to lifestyle businesses and or early stage investment and capital formation for those startups. Historically a high growth um, business typically was implied like some kind of a tech startup, right? So something very scalable. By that I mean you know you put a certain amount of resources in to develop the software and then you can just keep selling that service over and over and that's the leverage you get uh, from that scale. Lifestyle businesses historically have been things more like, um, you know, those which may be doing very well and might even be, certainly be profitable, which is some, often not the case with startup. Usually it's not even the goal initially. So, um, but that's more of, a, you know, could be sustainable. So it might be, you know, a $300,000 revenue thing that's allowing the, the owner to bring in 100000 of like income could be a million and a half allowing them to bring in more. I mean, it could be all sizes, but I guess the question is like, are you thinking about that downstream exit strategy? Are you thinking about building value, you know, for shareholders broadly, or is it something that is, you know, nice? Uh, uh, I think Andrew's business is some kind of a hybrid in that regard because I think he's probably going to, would land squarely somewhere in the middle. I think these are all very valid points. In my situation, yes, uh, uh, we built the company with the idea of making money as quickly as possible. We bootstrapped it for sure, and we still bootstrap it to this day because we want to have a highest EBITDA possible for a couple reasons. One, it's because we were, you know, self-funded and started on our own. We wanted to be able to, you know, potentially, you know, write dividends to ourselves someday or, you know, eventually if someone, we get lucky enough and there is somebody that wants to buy this, great. Um, and we have, you know, good multiples on that. But the reality is, is I have to be honest with myself. This is a very competitive industry. Things change quickly. Um, there may never be a buyer. So I wanted to be able to create something that becomes almost like, like you said, a lifestyle brand, where if we make enough revenue every year, uh, I can support my family and, you know, grow it as, as I need to. And, and it fits the lifestyle I want to live as well. So um, we are that hybrid. You know, we're, it is, I would say, there are a couple of philosophies when people do startups. Some is like grow at all costs and they don't care about making a profit and they just want to continue to continue to see the revenues grow so that they can, you know, demonstrate growth so that someone will maybe buy that. 
Um, and that's one way to do a business. But what happens if you do that for five years and no one buys your business? You've just been losing money for five years. What's the point of that? Uh, we wanted to build a different business. So part of the reason we don't co-pack and we self-manufacture is one, so we can create the best product possible because of the way that we do quality and the way that we do different work that other traditional co-packers don't do. But two, because, yeah, we want to get to a point where, frankly, making money on every case uh, and, and a good amount of money on every case. Because, uh, look, I think this is... Uh, who knows where this is going to go? Who knows where it exits? Uh, but in the short term, we're making money. In the long term, I definitely want to keep making money. So, uh, yeah, it's it's so, and that's what's the hybrid. And I mean, I think, Andrew, you probably bring some of your insights from your corporate experience, knowing that what could be perceived as valuable to a buyer includes some of those integrated elements that, you know, maybe somebody not as familiar with your industry because there are a lot of folks talking about this stuff, as you said, it's sort of a, a, a flavor of the day in um, in some ways. And so, uh, I think, yeah, I think that's a great advantage that you have thinking about that. Yeah, and just getting back to that point, <clears throat> even from the earlier question, um, yeah, like I think what I liked about my route was I learned so much on corporate America's dime. And to the, your point, you just said like. I even worked in Coca-Cola's venturing and emerging brands group. So, I, and I wasn't on the M&A side; I was on the brand side. But I still got to talk to the people on the M&A side, and I was like, "Well, what are you looking for when you're looking to bring in companies?" I know that big companies are not good at internal innovation; uh, they don't incubate very well. Um, and they, and again, there's a mindset shift. I mean, it's like you act differently when it's just a nine-to-five job versus when it's your baby, right? So that's part of the problem. But the other problem is. I took those lessons, I reapplied them to what I do today, uh, and it was really valuable. So I would, I would encourage people, like, learn someone else's dime. It's a good idea. And then moreover, to your point, I learned that, guess what? Corporations aren't buying unprofitable companies anyway. So this grow-at-all-cost mentality where you're not making money along the way, no one's going to buy you anyway. <laughs> so uh, that's a little secret to tell people. But, like, you have to make money for them to want to buy it because they're not going to look at it and say, oh, if we take an unprofitable business and scale it up, we'll somehow make money. They don't think like that anymore. The days of buying unprofitable companies are well over. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned your background in brand management and how that helped you. And we know that acquiring necessary skills is vital for success. So what are some of those key skills that would-be entrepreneurs should focus on developing in order to thrive in the world of startups? You, you asked a little bit of an, a, a question around mindset shifts uh, to Andrew earlier as regards to when he made the leap from corporate to his own startup. And, you know, I think as you heard in his story, you're going to be called to do any manner of things. The greatest skill you can have is just the willingness to say, I'm in here to roll up my sleeves and whatever it takes, I'll do to, you know, to a degree ethically. Um, but that being said, you know, I'm a huge um, growth mindset, you know, believer. I just think you have to, you have to value your hard work and know that it could lead to outcomes that you want it to lead to. Uh, you're going to learn a ton. So I think just that open-mindedness willingness to to know that um, what you your efforts that you put in will pay off and you will you know even if only on a personal you know level you might end up you know finding that you learned things about yourself that then inform whatever you do next and and make you more valuable you know to your community to your family to the, whatever corporation you might rejoin if that's your path I, I just think you have to have a growth mindset 
Absolutely. I'd love to jump in the funding question because that's such a big part of this, right? So funding is a critical aspect of starting a business. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs when it comes to securing funding or attracting investors? Uh, well, I'll start with that one, Monique, and I would say f you should try to emulate Andrew. <laughs> but um, but but I'll I'll let him give more detail why. But you know, it's funny because for for you know nearly two decades, I was a venture capitalist, and uh, the first thing I would tell any startup founder is, don't take my money if you don't have to. You know, find ways to self fund. The best, the best funding source you could ever have is revenue from your customers. So that will always be better than taking a loan or taking, you know, selling equity or any of these other um, opportunities that might come up that are dilutive to your ownership uh, and or your control. So that being said, you know, there are increasing number of various forms of equity and capital that could be raised, um, you know, not only three, three, four years ago, the crowdfunding laws changed uh, to the degree now that even non-accredited investors, meaning investors that aren't, you know, making tons of money or already have tons of money, can make investments. You know, as low as in some cases two hundred dollars, but maybe maybe more. You know, maybe two thousand, maybe ten thousand. But the the idea that there are ways for uh, businesses, and particularly businesses like Andrews, that don't necessarily need the pressures of taking venture capitalist funding because um, you know my funding in those days comes with a lot of expectations and a lot of pressure and if I do that job well we've got incentives aligned together but if I do it poorly and they're you know then we're gonna be at odds and and nothing could be more destructive to value than kind of finding yourself at odds with your capital providers so I think uh, resourceful entrepreneurs these days, should and could uh, be able to tap into a great variety of different types of capital that have different types of return profiles and therefore you know your ability to service those can can be matched to the needs and your vision for your financial plan for your business but i think andrew has done a great job and uh, i'd love to if he's willing to share more details on that I think, again, there's some advantages to being a late-in-life entrepreneur, and some of the lessons you just said are, are, are very clear to me. Um, and my business partner had done some other entrepreneurial ventures before, so you know, he uh, learned lessons from him, too, as well along the way. I would say this. you know, We were self-funded, and the reason I wanted to do that is I have a different philosophy about how to raise money anyway. So one is, if you de-risk the investment, it's much easier to go get money, right? So what we did is we built and this is, again, a lesson from Coca-Cola and other places, pilot. You know, so we built our pilot. We built our first canning line in a small warehouse. We launched in Georgia and then replicated success in South Carolina and Tennessee. So we showed that this thing has legs. And so then when we needed to just raise a little bit of money um, just to scale this, again, because once we proved out the concept, then scaling is the next phase, uh, we were able to just simply go to friends and family, take a 7 a SBA loan just for a little bit of money to build the bigger, faster line and invest a little bit more in Salesforce as we are now in 18 states and growing. So uh, we've able, been able to maintain full control, and we just have a couple friends and family that just put a little bit of money in and a little bit of this risk with this loan. But the idea there was we wanted to maintain full control, and we also wanted to maintain full upside for whatever happens. So whether we're writing dividends or whether we're going to be taking and you know sell the company, you know, we want the founders to be rewarded for that. So um, 
but again, the other thing you said was, again, we also have been, why we're bootstrapping and why we're, we want our margins to support our future growth. So I don't think I'll ever have to take another dime. So that's kind of how we built this company. And that's the reason we want to do it this way. So it is hard to find something that is, you know, de-risked if you're an investor as well. So I thought that if we ever had to raise money again, I want to at least have a track record to say, guys, look, here's what we've done with, you know, you can watch our revenues grow up. You can see our margins grow up. You can see our profitability grow up. And now we just need a little extra boost. Can you help us get to the next level? That's a much easier conversation than, hey, I've got this crazy idea and you don't know me from anybody, but can I have a million dollars? You know, so yeah. like, so I just think de-risking uh, is, is, is the path that I thought worked best for us. One of the things that I observed in our investment portfolio is there's a real fundamental change in your option set the moment you cross into a profitable space. So Andrew pushed it fast and hard, like that was his objective from the beginning. Some of the high growth startups realize that they're going to burn some capital and there's a little bit of a J curve. But I will say that some of the greatest moments I've ever been involved with in the startup world were when some of those tech startups started to maintain reach and then maintain profitability. And you just realize that your option sets become massively more varied and, and valuable. And so uh, I think Andrews saw that, had that insight from the get-go and try to get there quickly. And I think that's very, very prudent. What's interesting is that you're talking about testing out concepts. How do entrepreneurs evaluate opportunities? What do you think is a good way to do that? That's that's a that's a very big question. Uh, so uh, you know there are books written on those lean methodologies and other things like that. Um, you know I do believe in prototyping. I do believe in having something that people can touch, feel. Again, I'm not a technology guy, so it's a little bit different. But um, you know, yes, in my situation, I talk to distributors, I talk to retailers, I talk to consumers, I try to get a sense of whether this would be something that people would want to, you know, exchange value for, um, and I will actually purchase. Corporate America, I had access to all the data in the world, uh, you know, and in this industry and in my world, I have no access to any data. So it's a lot harder. It's a lot more gut. Um, but I will tell you... Um, the one advice I give to people when they ask these questions is like, well, my gut check is, are you differentiated? It is such a competitive world out there. If you don't have a true point of difference against your competition, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be too expensive to try to break through. Um, again, my business partner's first idea to me uh, in the liquor space, not to overshare what it was, but it was a clear liquid in a 750 ml bottle. And if you walk into any liquor store, there are literally aisles and aisles and aisles of that. Now, of course, there's differentiation between the products, and but it's hard to tell if you're just the consumer perusing the aisle. So in my situation, I was like, no, I want to create a ready to drink, which is not a huge aisle yet, but it's a growing aisle, and I want to create a right size. And we ended up 100 ml is the right size for a cocktail, because that's how you do it when you follow the recipes to a T. Then it was like, wait, I can't use PET and I can't use glass because it's too porous because uh, I'm using real lime juice, unlike everybody else, because I committed to real ingredients. So I had to build my own canning line. I, I did all these things, but the end result was we had a differentiated product. In the beginning, I used to walk into a liquor store, and it was hard to convince people that they needed a product like mine because they'd never seen something like it before, which is a little bit of a challenge, but it's a good challenge to have. Um, if I had walked in with another 12-ounce can that looked like everything else, you know, I think that would have been a much harder road. So 
for me, one, is it differentiated? I mean, truly differentiated. If it's not, it's going to be too expensive, too hard to get in. Uh, and then from there, just do the basics like we talked about before. Do follow the lean method. You know, create your prototype. Figure out if all the all the touch points, whether it's the distributor, whether it's the retailer, whether it's the end consumer, whoever it is, you make sure that they're happy with what you've got. And then hopefully word of mouth and marketing, and then it goes. So, Brian, as a former venture capitalist, What's your perspective on evaluating opportunities? Yeah, I think Andrew's being a little modest. I mean, he said, I don't have access to data, but he did have the insight to think through how big is this market? And he found out that's a pretty sizable market. And what is it? Is it growing? And it's growing quite well. So I think fundamentally what I like about Andrew and his positioning and his timing, um, I'm a big fan of trying to find the wave and catch the wave. I'm not a fan of betting on the surfer. Surfboard's gonna go if it's on the wave. You know, I'm a terrible surfer, but I can catch a wave. And and so that's always been, you know, my kind of, um, my philosophy is really look for, if you're thinking about a startup, you know, and, and hopefully you have a little bit of domain expertise is, is gonna help you. And if you don't find that in a co-founder, you know, of some nature, but, avoid creating a great solution for a problem that might very well exist, but doesn't necessarily seem to be kind of like coming in in a wave as a set of waves. Two days ago, I was on the phone with a Goizueta alum who is a successful um, business graduate here and, and wanting to get involved and get, you know, and give back. And he told about one of his failed entrepreneurial journeys, and he focused on a space where they, he's like, we had a great solution, but just market just wasn't big enough. And it really couldn't sustain the kind of growth that we needed for the way that we were thinking about it. And so, you know, he closed that down uh, and moved on, and he's, you know, he's, he's doing fine. But it was, you know, that's sort of related to the question that I think is most important. Really find that wave that fits with sort of your vision, your values, your interests, your passions, and try to get on that wave. Okay, we need to touch on this because I feel like this is the elephant in the room, failure. And there's the failure of a venture as a whole, but there's also the failures that happen and just the ups and downs of running a business. How can entrepreneurs embrace failure? Should they embrace failure? What's a more productive way to think about failure? Uh, well, I'll give a, I'll, I'll let Andrew give the perspective from the entrepreneur. I'll give a perspective of someone currently working with students, but also having been an investor in startups. Um, I mean, personally, two things. When I first modeled out the portfolio for the fund that we launched in 2005, I looked at the need and I thought, again, that wave is so big, that market is so underserved, all these portfolio companies are gonna get around the bases, you know, in the baseball analogy. And it turned out I was wrong, and I was wrong in the way that I should have been wrong. The The reality is most of them failed. Um, did the fund fail? No, the fund didn't fail because venture capital has a dirty little secret. It's called the power law of venture, and it means that two to three of your investments out of 10 are gonna make all of your returns. And it's almost immutable. Like I don't know a fund that does well that doesn't do it that way. So I, I kind of modeled in an unconventional way thinking the need was so great and it turned out it wasn't that way. But fortunately we made some good decisions along the way and, and turned out all right. Um, you know, I think culturally, you know, working with students, there's, especially at a school like Goizueta, where we've got 
um, amazingly accomplished students, particularly in the master's degree ranks. Undergrads are, you know, mind-blowingly intelligent and and just they're they're they have the audacity to go ahead and fail. So I don't really worry about it with the undergrads, but the master's degrees, they don't want to fail. Like they already spent a good bit of time building a good young career. They didn't fail. They are not used to that. Um, and so it's a little different uh, conversation. But, um, you know, I, I do think you have, you, you have to also put yourself into that growth mindset where you learn from your failures. And um, I think without a doubt, the successful investments we made, I learned less from because we just got, we had a little bit of luck. You got to have a little bit of luck in venture capital. Uh, but we did a lot of things right. And, and f you know, with startups, I would often tell people, like, it feels to me like there's, there's like a thousand ways to screw them up and run them into a ditch. And there's probably less than a handful of ways to get it right. And luck has to be involved. So, you know, and, and it's not the same for everyone. So, you, you know, you have to realize that you're flirting with failure at almost every decision, but you need to build feedback mechanisms so that you can quickly know and perceive that and then iterate in directions that take you um, around that or help you to avoid that would be my thinking around failure. And I don't know what Andrew's situation has been with his governance for his, st uh, for his company, but uh, I, I think that most entrepreneurs, Andrew alluded to this idea that you kind of fall in love with the baby that you've created. And it is really hard to take any negative information about that, right? Because this is beautiful. And I think the startups, I've seen mediocre startups reach great successes with good and better governance. So I think if you're if you're an, an entrepreneur getting started, you know, there's a time and a place to develop a board of directors or to develop a board of advisors. But I think what you should be looking for in those categories of kind of support for you and your business are the folks that will give you, you know, that will help you understand the data that you're looking at as well and give you a clear and honest perspective on it. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm just a firm believer that you, you need to surround yourself with people that will really, you know, help you carry the day uh, in the end because it is a tough journey. And th that's really your only place to go because everyone else is your employee, right? And that's also different. You might have a co-founder, and I don't mean to say that you, you can't have great relations with your employees, but it's different, you know. Uh, some of the things you have to hold in are different than just general workplace grudges and, and you know, um, dissatisfactions and such. So that just to urge young and aspiring entrepreneurs to think through trying to align, you know, two to three members, board director, something, as soon as they feel comfortable, as they start raising capital, it's going to be required because, you know, they're being entrusted with other people's money for their startup. But I find it a good practice no matter what. And uh, I really do encourage it. I'm so glad you brought this up. This idea that it's lonely at the top and you can't turn to your employees to have some of those conversations. Your network becomes really important. What are your thoughts on developing a network within the startup ecosystem and even mentors or the board of governance that you mentioned? I mean, I think you're right. I think you, <laughs> you know, I, I think I can even do a better job of that. You know, um, I think that's something that we all can do better networking, learning from other people's less stories. You know, there's always nuggets of wisdom from other people um, that you can reapply in your own 
in the way that you behave. To have a network of people to kind of go to that's not your boss to have questions and mentorship outside of that is valuable. I would say do that. Uh, and then when it is your own business, just try to find a peer set of people who may be in direct competition or not in different categories that don't even overlap with yours, but there's always le- lessons to be had. Yeah, I, I think Andrew's perspective is is great there. I mean, there's this element of coopetition, right, with your peers. And you can probably find two to three that that form a great, you know, sort of discussion group. I think don't be afraid to realize that your mentor might not be sort of that gray-haired person that you, you know, has been your mentor for years. It could be a young, you know, if you're a mid-career making the jump from corporate, you're probably mid-career, right? Don't don't not look on the younger generation as like, you know, you're going to get as much information or more from where they're coming from. And so you do need to do things to build your network proactively. And it's, it is as much of just like some mentors as much as it is being intentional about the groups that you join and where you spend your sort of semi-volunteer, semi-like not job type, you know, uh, time and, and effort. So um, it's but it, pay, it pays it pays rewards, I think. Um both personally and professionally. I'd love to talk about resources. How does the center support aspiring students and alumni interested in entrepreneurship? Okay, well, that's a huge question. Um, it, it, on a micro level, what you know, we have launched the center two years ago. Um, I've only joined recently, and it's largely designed to build off of the incredible work done by a handful of the professors here at Goizueta Business School who I really can say are doing incredible work trying to find students wherever they are in that entrepreneurial journey. My role is supporting them, you know, but I'm trying to do that by building experiential opportunities for students to plug in, to go work with startups, to go work with early stage investors, to go, you know, to, uh, to experience sort of what corporate and product innovation look like. So um, I think there are ways to do that. We obviously have some specific programs that can help with real training. Uh, we run an accelerator. We actually run an investment fund. It's a student-run investment fund focused on underrepresented minorities. We're thinking about replicating that as well, focusing on female founders, so um, kind of replicating and scaling a little bit. So, you know, even at Goizueta, as students, you have an opportunity to kind of plug in at multiple places in this sort of funnel where you might need and want to find support and resources. What final words of advice would you give to someone who has a secret desire to venture into entrepreneurship but hasn't taken the leap yet? My number one, you know, kind of philosophy around that is sort of there are things you'd be crazy to do and there are things you'd be crazy not to do. And I would say if you feel that itch and you can align the rest of the things that you need in your world to to support that, you'd be crazy not to do it. So give it a go. Make sure that you understand what you're getting into. uh, and I'm more honest about that now than I was years ago. Like I just, you know, I, I just, it's, it's, it's been amazing. It's had its ups and downs, but it's been absolutely amazing. But not everyone's built for that. My wife, who is amazing, and she has a different mindset about these risks and and she, you know what she does every day and how her day is planned out. This wouldn't be for her. And you know, and she's incredibly successful doing the corporate world, and that's perfect for her. So she should stay there. Um, I just, I'm better suited for this. And so find what you. Again, if you're passionate about it, you'll work harder. 
something you just said just triggered another question. How do you deal with a situation when you know that entrepreneurship is for you? You've thought about it, you're built for it, you're ready, but your wife or your husband or your family, your friends, whoever, they're more risk averse. How do you manage and deal with that aspect of starting a business? Oh, they're going to be risk averse. Yes. I mean, I think my parents and brothers were talking behind my back when I was leaving corporate America to go start a crazy idea in liquor. Um, no, that's going to happen. You just have to have thick skin about it. Um, I mean, if you are truly committed to this idea and you have the data you think that's going to prove it, and then you go through the tasks of launching your pilot, de-risking the idea and being proving that it's scalable, then, then you get to smile and say, look, I did it. You know, So yeah, I know I think there's always going to be naysayers. And that's the other thing about entrepreneurship is there will always be naysayers. And even on the venture side, I'm sure there you'd be people up about their ideas and that and you're, again, Nicely. challenging them <laughs> to make sure that they had done all their thinking and got to get through. But uh, the point there is that that's also important too. I mean, you have to be challenged. You have to have people that are questioning your idea, questioning your logic, questioning decisions you make so that you can make sure that you're you're confident in, in, in these and, and make sure they're really well thought out. Because, um, you know, yeah, I would just say just you're going to hear no a lot of times and you just got to get used to saying, well, they just don't get it yet. And then just keep moving on. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate both of you for being here. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you for joining. For more information about the Goisweta Effect podcast, visit emory.biz forward slash podcast.